Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Have you ever read the book of Ruth? Though it's only four chapters, it contains timeless truths that can help us today. Our culture puts an incredible amount of pressure on spouses to never change, be perfectly compatible at all times, and fulfill our deepest longings, that it's no wonder that singles often can't seem to find the right one. However, the the lesson of Ruth's life is that she pursued God, she did the right thing, she took care of those around her, she was a woman of virtue and loyalty, and as a result of that, God took care of her finding her a spouse, and even building her a lasting dynasty. Now, I certainly don't mean to say that you have to be married in order to be a fulfilled human being. Of course, Jesus was single for life. But if this is something that that matters to you, either getting married or having a good marriage, then this book of the Bible can really help, help provide some insights on this important subject. Here now is podcast 134, Finding the Love of Your Life in the Book of Ruth. The Book of Ruth is this really incredible story of a situation where everything went wrong in the first chapter. So we're going we're to work our way through the Book of Ruth. It's only four chapters, and I hope to be able to cover all of it this morning with you. And so if you uh, could just start with me in chapter 1, verse 1, we'll read, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. So we see that the book of Ruth happens during the time of the judges. The judges were before the kings. And in fact, we find this phrase in the book of Judges four times over where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you ever see that phrase? Anybody ever read the book of Judges? It's, it's not the most edifying book. I'm going to tell you right now. It's an honest book. And it honestly shows you a cycle of dysfunction. And there are four stages to the cycle of dysfunction. The first stage is the people forsake God and they start worshiping other gods, start worshiping idols. Okay, that's the first stage. Stage two is God stops protecting his people. He withdraws his hand of blessing. And someone comes in, a foreign nation from a neighboring country, will come in and start conquering the people or oppressing them or taxing them. Some great calamity or crisis will happen. That's stage two. Stage three is the people realize, wait a second, when we were worshiping the true God, we were okay. And then when we forgot about him and worshiped these idols, then these foreigners started oppressing us. Maybe we should cry out to God for help. And so they cry out to God for help. And then stage four of the cycle of dysfunction is God raises up a judge to deliver the people. And so long as that judge is alive, the people serve the true God and things are good. And then they forget about God and we're back to step one. And they start worshiping other idols, so God withdraws his hand of blessing, so foreigners start to oppress them, so they cry out, so he raises up another judge to deliver them. And you see this cycle, and we just kind of go around this over and over and over throughout the whole book of Judges, and there are just all kinds of dysfunction happening there. And Ruth lives during this time, the time of the Judges, when there's a loose confederation of tribes, it's not a centralized government. And people are doing what's right in their own eyes. Now, some of the people are worshiping the true God, and some of them aren't, and it depends on when we're talking about, but that's the time that Ruth is happening. So, verse 1 again. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. Okay, so it's during the day of the judges, and there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Now, when there's a famine and you're living in an agrarian society, you've got yourself a problem. There are no grocery stores, no refrigeration, no electricity, no trucks transporting food from place to place. 
When there's a famine and you're in an agrarian society, you've got a crisis on your hands. You've only got a few options. I think I put them in your, in your notes there. You can find a way to get food from someone else, or you can move somewhere else that doesn't have a famine, or you can just starve to death. That's kind of a shocking thing to put in there, and, and maybe you think I'm trying to be cute, but in ancient civilization, death was, an, it was always sort of crouching at the door. Starvation was always just around the corner. You don't have systems in place to catch you, nets to catch you, if the grain doesn't grow. So starvation is a serious, ever-present threat that they're dealing with. And so those are the options. You can find a way to get food from someone else. Maybe you can sell some of your things to somebody who has food. You can barter, maybe. Uh, Another thing you might do is, is beg for food at the city gate and try to provide for your family that way, which would be very difficult. And then another possibility is you could sell a child into slavery. This is something that happened a lot. Elimelech is the guy we're going to look at here. He has two sons. He could sell one of his sons into slavery, use that money to pay for food for his family. He knows his son would be taken care of because he would have enough food under his owner, his master. And then when things got better, buy his son back from the slavery that he has sold him into, which is really a horrible option too, right? So he chooses to leave. He's like, you know what? There's famine here. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going, to try, I'm going to try farming. I'm going to try shepherding. Whatever his trade was, I'm going to try it somewhere else, and hopefully things will get better. So that's what he does. Chapter 1, verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. So they went to another country, a country called what? Moab, which is right next door to Israel. And uh, today that country is called Jordan. It's the country of Jordan. And so that's where they went and they stayed there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. But wait, it gets worse. Verse 4. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years then both Malon and Kilian also died, and the women were bereft of her two children and her husband. This is really bad. We've lost three husbands. We've got six people, and now we've lost half of them. It just so happens it's all the men that have been lost. And so we have Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And so the widow has very few options, too. She can go back with her family. She can remarry. She can depend on the charity of others. A lot of times, widows became prostitutes just to make ends meet in the ancient world. Or they could starve. I mean, again, that stark realization that death is right around the corner because you're in a a, a situation where there isn't any safety net to catch you. And so Naomi recognizes the severity of the situation. She says, I can't provide for these girls. I love them. They're my daughters-in-law, but I can't provide for them. I'm going to tell them to choose option one. Go with their families. I'm going to go with my family. They can go with their families, and maybe our families can help us. So in verse 6, that's what we read. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people in giving them food. So the famine is over back in Judah. And so that's good news. So she departed, verse 7, from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi was a quality woman. You see that here? I mean, look at her God talk. Look at how she talks about God. She's not talking to them about God. She's talking to them about what they need to do. And she can't help but bring Yahweh into it. Her God, the Israelite God. They're Moabites. They serve other gods. The, The God of Moab is Chemosh, not Yahweh. And she says, may Yahweh deal kindly with you. And you see this tender moment where a mother... Uh, and law and her two daughters-in-law, they're at a point where they're going to s- split ways. They're going to part. And they weep. 
You know, and there's it's high emotion here. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. Look at how quality I mean, what kind of woman was Naomi? That these two foreign women were like, they love their mother in law so much that they're like, No, we want to go with you. Knowing that she can't provide for them, knowing that she can't help them. Verse 11, Naomi said, Return, my daughters, why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Naomi says, look, everyone, we're all going to go with option one. We're all going to go back to our families. And Orpah cries, and, and she's sad, but she says, all right, I'm going to go back to my, to my family. And uh, you see that what it says in verse 15. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law, Naomi said to Ruth, has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, this is something very important for us to recognize. That the gods and the people, the gods and the land, are linked together. Okay, so Naomi says, go back to the land. Orpah says, I don't want to go. I love you. You're such a quality woman. You've taught me so much. I married your son, and, and you have been like a mother to me, and I, I, I love this how you talk about this foreign God, Yahweh, and everything else. But in the end, when push comes to shove, Orpah says, all right, I'll go. I'm going to go back to my land, go back to my family, and go back to the gods of my land. But not Ruth. What does Ruth do? Verse 16. Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge... I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Now that is a declaration. That's somebody saying, no, I'm not going back. I don't want the gods of my old land. I want you, and I want your gods or your God, there's only one God for the Israelites, right? Yahweh. I want to throw in my lot with you. I know you can't provide for me, but I, I'm sticking with you, Naomi. I mean, incredible, incredible woman here. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Naomi got the clue. Hey, there's no reasoning with this girl, <laughs> right? She's coming with me, whether I like it or not. It's important to realize this is not like moving to Canada, if you move to Canada, you've got to learn how to deal with the flashing green light. Has anybody seen the flashing green light? No. Okay, so in Canada, they have a light that's a flashing green, and it doesn't mean go and then stop and then go. It means go. And you can take a left if you want or not. It doesn't matter. It's like this super green. It's a flashing green. Okay, it's a very minor thing to learn. If you're moving from Moab to Israel, it's more than just learning a few traffic rules. We're talking about everything changing, a culture that is radically different. The Israelite culture is determined by the law of Moses. You can't wear wool and cotton mix anymore. You can't work on Saturday anymore. No more pork. I mean, these are just little things, but we're talking about a massive cultural shift. Instead of worshiping at the statues, you worship the one true God through sacrifice without any statues. That's different. Instead of worshiping a God for this and a God for that, you just worship Yahweh. That's it. And so there are these major shifts. And Ruth is saying, look, I'll take it all. I want it. I want to be part of your people. I want to worship the same God as you. That's what she said. She's abandoning her family gods. She's abandoning Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. And she's going to serve an exclusive god, a god who doesn't tolerate cheating. She, I mean, this is a big change. This isn't just taking a little trip over to the border, even though it was just over the border to Israel. It was, a, it was a major thing. And so I want to share with you a little bit about the background of Moab so that you have an idea of the prejudice and the racism that 
was between these two peoples, the Israelites and the Moabites. Because let me tell you something, they hated each other. They absolutely despise each other. And a Moabite woman is the worst kind of person that you would want to have any dealings with. Okay? To start out with, Moab was a guy. He was, he was a person. And his dad was Lot. His dad was Lot. Now, Lot is a relative of who? Abraham, right? So it's Abraham's relative, Lot. And you, you, maybe you remember Sodom and Gomorrah. The city was destroyed, but Lot and his two daughters were saved, and they were brought out of the land with the uh, angels. And, and Lot got a little, um, I don't know if you want to call it cold feet or agoraphobic or something. He decided not to settle in a city because he had just seen Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities destroyed by fire from heaven. So he's a little gun-shy, I guess. So he goes and he stays in a cave with his daughters. And he's staying in a cave with his daughters. And do you remember what happens next? His daughters say, there's, there's no hope for us. There's no men for us. Our dad is living in a cave and we're with him. And how are we ever going to have husbands or children? How are we going to pass on our name? And so they come up with a plan. We'll get dad drunk and then we'll sleep with him. Not the best plan. But that's how we got Moab. Moab was the son of Lot and his firstborn daughter. So that Moab's not starting out on a good foot. Okay? And the Israelites are telling this story. You know? They know this story. The second thing is, when the Israelites, this is hundreds of years later, when they came out of the, the land of Egypt, they are coming to the promised land, and uh, Moses was with them, leading them. They come by the land of Moab, and God says to them, look, I don't want you to mess with the Moabites. They're your kinsmen. I've given that land to the Moabites. I have not given you that land to the Moabites. I'm going to give you the promised land. That's not the promised land. Don't mess with the Moabites. And so God's kind of got their back. It's interesting, huh? But the Moabites, don't, they don't really have any trust in this situation. And they see this horde of pilgrims coming out of nowhere, and they hear stories about plagues in Egypt and stuff, and they are freaking out. And so Balak, the king of the Moabites, hires Balaam to curse the Israelites. And he brings them up to a high place so he can see all the Israelites camp there and uh, in their tents. And Balaam says, I want you to curse these people by Yahweh. And what does Balaam do? He blesses them. And that happens a second time, and then a third time. So Balaam is blessing them three times, because God won't even let the words escape his mouth to curse them. And so, then we hatch a plan. God's not going to let me curse these people. We're going to have to somehow get the protection of God off of the people, so that we can really mess with them. So what, what did he do? He came up with a plan. Balaam came up with a plan and advised the king, and he said to the king, you know what? This God of theirs, Yahweh, he doesn't tolerate idolatry. If we can get the people to commit idolatry, then he won't protect them anymore. So they sent down Moabite women. They found the most attractive Moabite women. They sent them down to the camp of the Israelites, and they seduced the men away. And they brought the men away, and they slept with the men, and they got them to worship Baal. And do you know what the end result of that fiasco was? 24,000 Israelites died from a plague, stopped by Phineas with his spear. And that, that story about the Moabites was encapsulated in this one command we find in the book of Deuteronomy. I've got it in your, in your notes there, the reference, so I'm not going to turn to it. But the command is this, no Moabite will ever come into the congregation of Israel, even to the 10th generation. I don't want any Moabites among my people, is what God commands Moses. I don't want them. They're no good. See what they did? 24,000 just died. We almost lost the whole thing. We're not even in the promised land yet, and these Moabite women have seduced the men away to serve other gods. I don't want any Moabites in the congregation. That's what God says in the time of Moses, hundreds of years before Ruth. Or maybe only 100 years before. It's hard to say. And then we have Eglon the Moabite king, a guy named Eglon. He was a big guy. 
he decided he was going to league with Ammon and Amalek, two other nations, and fight against Israel during the time of the judges. And he conquered Israel, or at least a portion of it, and dominated them for 18 years. Israelites paying taxes to Eglon, the king of Moab. So there's a left-handed judge, a guy named Ehud, who comes up that God raises up to deliver them from Eglon, and he assassinates the king secretly. You can read about that in the book of Judges if you want, with his left-handed sword. And then he raises up an army and defeats 10,000, kills off 10,000 of the Moabites' most valiant men. Okay? How do you think by the time we get to the book of Ruth, Moabites feel about Israelites? How do Israelites feel about Moabites and Moabite women? How about a Moabite woman who was married to an Israelite that died? We're talking about rampant prejudice. And not for no reason. There's history. There's bad blood here. And Ruth has got all this in the background. And she says, no, I want to go with you. I want to be part of your people. I don't care about everything else. I don't care about what I leave behind. I don't care what prejudices I'm going to face when I get there. I want Yahweh. And that's what she does. Just incredible faith. Chapter 2. Ruth gleans. Gleaning is when you pick up the pieces that the harvesters miss. When they're wielding the sickle. They had this sickle and they would cut that barley or that wheat or the corn. And, and they would gather them up into sheaves. And inevitably some little pieces would fall to the ground. And the law of the land, the law that God gave the people was... You're not to be too thorough. You pass through it once. You don't pass through it twice when you're harvesting so that the poor, the widow, and the orphan, and the foreigner can come behind and pick those pieces up and that they can be provided for. Likewise, you're not allowed to harvest the edges of your field or the corners. Those are for the poor, the, war, the widow, and the orphan. It's God's built-in welfare plan. Chapter 2, so that's what Ruth takes advantage of. Right? She's got no way to make any money. Her, mo her mother-in-law has no way. So what are they going to do? They're going to take advantage of the provision God made for the foreigner and the widow. Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Boaz. I bet his friends call him Bo. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi... Please, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, I love this greeting Boaz gives. He's just like going to check out the workers. He's the owner. And he goes up and he says, May Yahweh be with you. That's how he says hi. <laughs> this is a man who believes in God. His hello is, May Yahweh be with you. And they reply, what? May Yahweh bless you. These are, these are God people. These are believers. Boaz and his workers here. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Who is this young woman? Who's, whose young woman is this over here? I don't recognize her. Who's this? There's Ruth out there, an attractive young woman, and she's gleaning in the, in the field. And, and she catches Boaz's eye, and he says, Who is, whose young woman is this? Right? And the answer would be, well, it's so-and-so's daughter, or it's so-and-so's wife. Because usually it would be related to the protector, whether it would be the father or the husband. And this is what they say instead. The servant of the reapers, verse 6, replied, She is a young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, so he goes up to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay with my maids here. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. What? A woman without the protection of a father or a husband or a brother 
is going to be vulnerable. And so Boaz says, hey, guys, don't touch her. She's under my protection. So Boaz is already... Now, why would Boaz do all this for a young Moabite woman? We're about to see. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Verse 10, she is just overwhelmed by Boaz. When she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Verse 11, Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. Boaz said, I heard what you did for Naomi. I heard your, your radical act of loyalty to our people, to our God, to forsake what you had behind. And look what he says in verse 12. This is my suggested memory verse for this book for today. May Yahweh reward your work and your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? I mean, look at the heart of Boaz. He says, look, you've left it all. May our God provide for you. May, may the one who's under whose wings you have come to seek refuge take care of you. And that's why Boaz is doing what Boaz is doing, because he's trying to be true to his God. And he sees, he sees this wounded soul. He sees this woman who's disenfranchised, who's got nothing going for her. She's a widow and a foreigner. She's got no husband, no father or protector in this new land. And Boaz says, for the sake of God, I will do what I will do. And you read the law. In the law, there's all these provisions for taking care of the foreigner taking care of the widow, taking care of the orphan. And Boaz is being true to that. Quality guy. Quality man. And so, let me read that again. May Yahweh reward your work. She's not sitting at home. She's working. Right? She's out in the field. She's gleaning. May Yahweh reward your work. And your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so, in verse 20... Ruth gets home and she reports to Naomi, hey, I got all this barley. And Naomi says, where'd you get all that barley? We read, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of Yahweh who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Look at this believer, Naomi. God has not withdrawn his kindness. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Boaz is a potential redeemer. We'll get into that in just a second. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. See, even Naomi knows you don't interrupt the man when he's trying to eat. <laughs> What's going on here is a very unusual, even for their times, situation. Ruth is going to approach Boaz and ask him, basically propose, ask him to marry her. Now, even in our culture, who does the proposal? On one knee. Right? The guy does it on one knee. And, and, and so, how much more so in their culture were these things arranged, even by parents, ahead of time? And so now, not only is she taking matters into her own hands, but she's, she's a woman going to this guy, and when's she going? In the middle of the day? No, she's going in the middle of the night. I mean, everything about this scenario is weird and unorthodox. I mean, she's a Moabite woman going in the middle of the night to an Israelite man to ask him to marry her. I mean, everything is set up to fail. Everything. You know, if she gets spotted by one of the other people, the threshing floor is, is not the same as the, the, the farming area. It's not the same as the field. The threshing floor would be an area that many different farmers would use, and they, they was, it was a time of great celebration. Okay? By the time you get to threshing, you've not only tilled the field, planted the seed, waited for it to grow, and harvested it, 
But now you've got it all gathered together at the threshing floor and you're going to get the grain off of the stalks. And this is a time of great rejoicing. And there is eating and there is drinking. And a lot of times the men would sleep out at the threshing floor and then do a whole other day and, and just keep doing it like that until they got it all done. And then they would go home. And so that's what's going on here. And no, no, notice one other thing too. This is all Naomi's idea. This isn't Ruth like, I need to find a husband. No, this is Naomi who says, look, do this. And Ruth, she doesn't know the customs of the land. She's just like, okay, I'll do it. You know, she's got that quality. She's got a humility to her, willing to listen. Okay, so after he's done eating and drinking, what's going to happen? It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will tell you what you shall do. All right. Okay. She's a woman of faith. She's going to give it a try, right? She said to her, all that you say, I will do. She, she, Ruth is the best Israelite. She hears the command and she does it. And she's not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. A Moabite woman. A Moabite widow. And she is the best. She is the prototypical believer who says, I will do it. And she does it. Watch, look at what she does. Just incredible courage here. When Boaz, oh, so, okay, so verse uh, 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. You know, boys at work. He's going to sleep out at the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. Whoa! Who are you? What's going on here? He said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But basically that's saying, marry me. Okay, well, I'm going to explain that in a minute, but that's, that's a proposal right there. Not exactly the way we would say it. Spread your covering over me because you're a close relative. But that is actually a proposal. She's asking him to marry her. And uh, what does he say? Then he said, this guy just loves God. Everything is always the first thing is about God, right? May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich, now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of what? Excellence. She carried herself in a quality manner. She was seeking after God. And she carried herself as a woman of excellence. And it's not just Boaz. Everybody knows it about Ruth. Now, it is true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As Yahweh lives, lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until the morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. It's like, we don't want word getting around that a lady was here last night. So he gets her up and out of there. And so... There are two, two things going on there. One is, she's approaching him in a way he can say no and save face. They live in an honor-shame society. She doesn't make the proposal in front of all the field hands in the middle of the day. She's finding him when he's all alone, when he can say yes or say no, and it's not going to destroy his reputation. And he's doing the same thing to her. He's like, look, let's get you out of here before people can see that you were even here. I want to protect your virtue, protect your reputation. And so we need to get into the subject of leveret marriage. Leveret marriage, I have a quote for you in your program, says, any child, this is from a book, Great People of the Bible and How They Lived. Any childless widow had the right to expect her dead husband's brother to marry her. Now, in our society, it's not that way. When somebody's husband dies, the, the brother-in-law is not bound by law to marry the widow. That's not the way America is in the 21st century. However, that was the rule for them. That was the rule for them. 
In our society, if the husband's got his act together, he's got life insurance. And the life insurance is supposed to care for the widow. And maybe he doesn't. So then, if she needs help, the government is there to help. Right? In our society. And if not that, she can get a job. Right? Widows can get jobs in our society. They, they couldn't there. See what I mean? So this is a very different society than ours. Getting a job, getting welfare, or getting life insurance, the three main ways that we cope with this situation, none of those are available. So there was a provision to take care of because God knew this was going to happen. He knew that sometimes somebody would die and his wife would still be alive, you know, and what to do. And so what God did is he provided that the brother would then marry the widow. If no brother existed, some more distant male relative was required to perform this duty. Whichever relative married the widow became her goel, redeemer. So this would become her redeemer, the goel, redeemer or protector. The first son born to the widow by the new marriage was counted as a child of the dead husband and inherited his property. So let's, let's run it through. Let's run it through. So Elimelech was the guy, right? And he had some property in Judah, in Bethlehem. We'll come back to Bethlehem in a minute. He had some property there, and he decided to leave because of the famine. He went to Moab. He died. So who inherits his property? His kids. He has two, two sons. But they both die. So somehow we've got to solve this whole problem. What's the solution to the problem according to their custom? It is to find a relative of Elimelech, or one of his sons, some relative of this family, to marry Naomi or marry Ruth or Orpah. Orpah's gone. Naomi can't have kids anymore. Ruth is the only one that's available in this situation. So finding a near relative to Elimelech is like hitting the lottery. You know what I mean? Because that means there's a potential that this person might do the right thing according to the law of God and redeem the widow. Not only redeem her and take her into his household and make her a wife, but that firstborn son gets all of the land, all of the inheritance of Elimelech. That's not going to Boaz. That's not going to the Redeemer. The Redeemer is a custodian. He's a guardian. He's a protector. And he is there to ensure that his brother or his close relative, is, his name is going to live on and his legacy is going to live on and lands are going to pass to his kid. Now, even though it's the new husband's kid, it's counted as the, the husband who had died, his kid. And so this is a really cool way that God set up to deal with this problem. And Ruth is basically saying on the threshing floor in the middle of the night, redeem me. Take me into your family. Raise up for me a son that can then inherit my husband's legacy, who had died, my dead husband's legacy. There's a lot going on here. And there's a whole, there's a whole business with the, with the sandal, and we're not going to get into all that, okay? There's a lot more in the story that, that, that we could cover in Ruth, even though it's only four chapters, uh, that I, I can't cover with you right now. But she essentially proposes to Boaz. And Boaz is a good man. Boaz is a good man. Boaz, he, he wakes up, and he's, he's going for it. He's not going to wait around for a week. He's not going to think about it. He's like, no. In the middle of the night, this happened. First thing in the morning, I'm going to go to the city gate. And that's what he does. He goes to the city gate, and he finds this guy who's a closer relative to Elimelech than he is. Who knows who he was? Maybe his brother, maybe a cousin. I don't know. And he says to him, look, Naomi has a piece of land from her husband Elimelech, and she's looking for somebody to redeem it. Can you redeem the land from Naomi? And the guy says, yeah, I could redeem the land. You know? Naomi can't have kids. She's you know, a little older, and he gets to keep the land. It's a good deal. And then Boaz says, well, when you redeem the land from Naomi, you also get Ruth, the Moabite widow. And this guy's like, well, uh, look what he says, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5. On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name 
of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, well, um, actually, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have the right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. So the guy passes, passes it to Boaz, who wants it. He wants to do the right thing. He wants to take care of Ruth. This guy's like, I'll take the lamb, but not the woman. <laughs> Boaz is like, I'll take the woman. Who cares about the land? Quality guy. And so then they uh, do this business with the sandal, which you can read on your own. And uh, verse uh, 10, Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And look at all the people, what they say. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your home. This is a Moabite woman. Make this woman like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. That's pretty cool, huh? You see, the, the women built the house of Israel. Because they're the ones that are doing all the work in the child birthing department, right? And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. We're about to see. She became famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which Yahweh will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and Yahweh enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is Yahweh who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. Look how God's just redeeming the whole situation. Naomi's got this job to take care of this little, little baby now. Ruth has got a, a husband, and he's not just any husband. He's a quality man of integrity. And honesty, a hard-working man who sleeps out at the threshing floor because he wants to get the work done. A guy who greets his, his workers with the, with the words, Yahweh be with you. This is the kind of guy that God has provided Ruth, the Moabitess. Then Naomi took the child, in verse 17, then the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. <laughs> so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Whoa. Whoa. Boaz does the right thing. Ruth is David's great-grandmother. David's great-grandmother is a Moabitess woman. Isn't that ridiculous? No Moabite will ever come in the congregation, even to the tenth generation. He made an exception for her. Because she wanted God. She wanted Yahweh. And the thing about our God, and the thing that you know, really turns my heart and warms my heart, one of the many, is that when you want Him, He wants you. And He's willing to change the rules about the culture and all the other stuff if He can get one more person to be with Him, to be in His family. I mean, look how many things had to line up here so that Ruth could be accepted into the whole situation and that she becomes the great-grandmother. That piece of land that was originally Elimelech's, her, fa her father-in-law, that became Ruth's property through Boaz. That piece of land, that's the land on which David is shepherding these sheep when the bear comes and the lion. Because that land was then passed from Obed to Jesse. Ruth is the beginning of all this. Because she said, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She had the courage to take a stand. And let me tell you something about finding the love of your life about which I have not spoken much yet. <laughs> Ruth had a husband. Malon was her husband. She had a husband. Been there, done that. She had love in her heart for Naomi. Right? She had incredible love in her heart for, for Naomi. She found the love of her life in her husband. She found it in Naomi. But it wasn't the, it, that, wasn't, that wasn't what satisfied. What satisfied is that she realized that Yahweh 
Not her husband, not her mother-in-law, not Chemosh, not Baal. Yahweh was the love of her life. And that's what sustained her. All the rest of it got taken care of. Did she seek a husband? She didn't even seek a husband. It was her mother-in-law. It's like, honey, we should probably figure this whole thing out. Why don't you... And she hatches the whole plan. Why don't you go lie down on the threshing floor and all the rest. Ruth's like, okay. Right, we'll do it. We'll give it a shot. Sometimes you've got to listen to people you know, that, that know what's going on. Would Ruth have come up with that plan? I don't think so. <laughs> right? And so she finds the love of her life. The love of Ruth's life is Yahweh. That's the love of her life. And Yahweh provides Boaz. And you know why Boaz is so darn attractive? Because he loves Yahweh. And you know why Ruth is so attractive to Boaz? Because she loves Yahweh. She did the right thing by Naomi. And she was a woman of virtue. Those are the things it says about Ruth. And Boaz is like, I want this woman. I'll redeem her. I'll redeem the land. I'll give all the land to her firstborn son. I don't care if it diminishes my inheritance. She's worth it. And the thing is, it, and this is, this is more from the modern day Ruth, my wife, who has the same name, is she says, you want to you attract a godly man? Be a godly woman. I've heard her say that many times to many people. You want to attract a godly man? Be a godly woman. You get this straightened out, and then a godly man will find that attractive. Same thing for the guys. You want to attract a godly woman? Become a godly man. You seek after God. You love God. And then other God lovers are going to come along and be like, wow, you're pretty, you got it going on. So although she has every reason not to, Ruth chooses Yahweh and his people. You know, the people of Israel had killed 10,000 of the valiant Moabite warriors. But she doesn't care. Ruth chooses Yahweh and his people. Even if it's a forbidden love, she wants the God of Naomi. Instead of spurning her, this is what our God does, this great lover. He accepts Ruth, and he, he doesn't just accept her, he provides for her, and she comes under the protection of his wings, our God's wings. God is the one who protects her and is her Goel and Redeemer, and then he provides Boaz to handle the details. But it, Boaz recognizes under God's wings that she comes for protection. Not only does he provide her with a husband and a means to thrive, but he grafts her into the ancestral tree that one day would sprout the branches, not only of the King David, but even Jesus, the Messiah. Ruth is the great, 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 however many greats, grandmother of Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the world. That's Ruth. That's incredible, isn't it? She's no longer some unfortunate Moabite widow. She's a matriarch, the great-grandmother of David and the premier example of a heart who found the love of her life. She found the love of her life, and God took care of the rest. I feel like that's the missing ingredient, you know? I mean, you could, you could, you could go to the, the store at the checkout line and see a thousand magazines that will give you advice on finding the love of your life. How many of them will tell you the insight from the book of Ruth? How many will tell you that the true way to find the love of your life, not the love of your year or of your month, but of your life, is to find the true God? And to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And He will provide. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for this example, for this incredible woman. We thank You for being a God that is so worth loving. A God who is willing to flout tradition, Make exceptions to your own rules just so that you can provide for and accept and redeem and transform someone who has a genuine desire. God, I pray that those of us whose love for you has grown cold, that you would ignite in our hearts a flame for you, Father. Give us passion for you. Those of us who have never come to know you before, I ask that you draw us to you by the love and the example that you have provided through, the, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and what He did on the cross for us. Please help us with this, Father, to recognize that You are the love of our life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that. We're in between classes right now, so we're only putting out a podcast once a week here for the next few weeks as we take our break in between classes. I'll give you some more information about the next one that's coming up. 
in a few weeks. But for now, I just wanted to encourage you, if you enjoy Restitutio, why not drop over to iTunes and give us a five-star review? In fact, we just received one from Jared entitled Faith Without Borders, and he writes, If you are looking for a faith-based podcast that is not afraid to look deeper and follow biblical truth wherever it may go, then this program is for you. His creator, Sean Finnegan, does an excellent job seeking out issues that are both relevant and pressing to the 21st century Christian. No topic is taboo. The discussions here prove scripture is ready to be tested and can in fact hold up to scrutiny. Well, thanks so much, Jared. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And I believe that a lot of what you're referring to there is our off-script series, where we look at a number of different cultural, current events, and moral issues, not really from a political point of view, that's not our goal, but from a biblical and issue point of view. And uh, so I encourage you, if you haven't yet heard any of the Offscript episodes, go check that out. Also, if you're just interested in Offscript and not all the rest of this, then you can subscribe to only the Offscript episodes as a separate podcast or only the classes as a separate podcast. So take a look at that. Also, Offscript episode 23 was one in which we discussed a very similar topic to this episode on Ruth with Dan Fitzsimmons and Rose Ryder called Worshiping Love, where we looked at the idol of love, Aphrodite, as it were, and considered the the deeper implications of the human heart and how we can so easily uh, strive for human affection to such a degree that it ends up just, we, we end up just crushing what it is we're seeking to preserve. So take a look at that. And also Podcast 12, Don't Let Them Go by Keith Daniel. Phenomenal podcast for especially those of us who are married to hear and really to take to heart this idea that once you are married, you're in it for life. Come what may. And whatever frustrations or fights come along, you, you can get through them. And with God's help, you can come out the other side even stronger. So take a look at that. I've got those links in the show notes. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.